Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. Welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. I am Ross Hillier, host of the show. Today we are joined by Mr. Bert Soren, and I was really excited to finally get to have Bert on the podcast. I've been wanting to talk to him for a very long time, uh, basically since before I even started this podcast and I knew I was going to do it. He was one of the people I was like, I need to get him on early uh, because I just want to learn from the guy. He's got so much awesome knowledge and stories to share. He's a great storyteller. Uh, he's president of Sorenex, which you guys, I'm sure if you follow me for any amount of time now, know that that's a company that I'm uh, very much a part of in the sense that I believe in what they're doing and uh, love the products that they make. And more importantly, I love the people that they've uh, put around themselves. And they were the ones that put on the Summer Strong event, which I know you've probably heard me talk about a couple of times on the podcast. Uh, but it was just really cool to be able to get down and talk with Bert. We talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, we nerded out on track. He was a professional hammer thrower, made it to the Olympic trials twice. So we talked about his experience doing that and some probably inside, you know, inside jokes slash things that maybe only some track people will understand. But it was fun to get to talk to him with talk with him about that kind of stuff. I had a great time reminiscing about track days and. Uh, talked a lot about what Sornex Outdoors is doing and that branch of things. And he also tells some really cool stories uh, about the innovation of Sornex, uh, some, some of the ways that the products that were created that are innovative in the fitness realm, how those things came to be. And it, it was born out of necessity. And there's just some really cool lessons to be learned there uh, if you're a business owner or if you're anybody that just has goals to do something, which should be all of us, by the way. Uh, he's just a great person to tell stories and listen to those stories. And so I was really pumped to, to again, to just share this time with him. Very grateful for that. Uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. There's a lot of good stuff in here and, uh, I'm just pumped for you to listen. So thank you for listening. If you haven't done so, and you would like to do so, I know I say this all the time, but it does really help out the show grow. 
whatever the algorithm gods are of Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and all these other places, they really like it when you click the follow and subscribe buttons. But that, it, you know, I'm not entirely sure what it does exactly, but I know that it gets put in front of more people on the search feeds when uh, there's a lot of people that subscribe. Uh, does it even more so when you leave a review or a five-star rating or whatever it is. Uh, if you feel so inclined and you enjoy the show, uh, please do that. It does help the show grow, and there's been a ton of people that have done it already and left some awesome reviews, and so thank you for all those people. Uh, it's been awesome. So uh, without further ado, dive into the episode with Bert Sorn. All right, everybody, welcome to the Nomad Strength Show. I'm Ross Hillier, your host. Today, I'm joined by Bert Soren. Bert, thank you for joining me today, my man. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ross. I appreciate it, bud. Yeah, it was cool. I got to, uh, this was my first, in May was my very first Summer Strong experience. Uh, I've mentioned it several times <laughs> on the show since then because most, honestly, most of the conversations and, and guests I've had on the show were people that I got to meet at Summer Strong. Oh, no, like, who had you had on? Who you uh, had, had, on? had Greg Walsh on, had Matt Good. Vincent on, had, um, we did a roundtable one with the guys that I stayed in the house with, uh, that was like Taylor Quick and John Simmons and a bunch of those guys that I was actually staying with during, you know, in our Airbnb or whatever. Um, but it nice. was just so cool, like to get to actually connect with all these people that I had. Oh, Jamie, I had Jamie Chiron last week or two weeks ago. Jamie's uh, awesome. Yeah, uh, we're actually on a call with him. My guys are on a call with him in 30 minutes. He's, he's oh, nice. super, super good dude. I, I had Luke Day on a couple of weeks ago. Like literally everybody oh, cool. was. Yeah, yeah Luke every, is I, fantastic too. Like he's quickly becoming one of my favorite people. Dude, um, same. You know, and, and so, okay, here's a question. So the dudes that you stayed with at Summerstrong, did you know any yeah. of those guys prior to? Uh, only through social media. So no I had never met anybody in person. Uh, and we were, I was a part of the group, uh, that did the, one of the fundraiser teams for blood origins for the yep. hunters for the hungry thing. Uh, and so there was like, I think eight or nine of us, Bo was one of the guys in that. Uh, and so all I had only ever met or, you know, not even met, but like talked to anybody over Instagram. And so like, it was just like, and it was one of the things we talked about just at summer strong in general was just how cool it is that if you can have these connections that you you'd never met these people in person, mm -hmm. but then you show up to this event and it's just like bear hugs. And it's like, you just known each other forever. Like it was some high school yeah. reunion, you know, and it was, yeah. it was killer. I loved it. Well, that that's, I appreciate, I'm glad that that's the case. And I mean, that's kind of what the, the intent was is to create or, or gather a group of extraordinary individuals that, mm -hmm. as we call it, say, live the code. And part mm -hmm. of that code is just being a good person and being a yeah. person that, you know, if you, you know, you know, you don't know these other five guys and you could all get an Airbnb together at a cool event and there's no issues and everyone realizes like, take, handle your business, take care of the guys to the right and the left of you, even if you've just met, because, you know, why not? The, the, the alternative is pretty shitty. You know? Yeah, like, seriously. And, and everyone, and that's kind of what we talked about at the beginning of Summer Strong, like, it's 14 years and, and a bunch of alphas getting together and we've never had an altercation, which yeah. I'm super proud of because, I mean, you, you go to a bar with more than 20 people in there and it's a bunch of dudes. Someone's getting in a fight. Yeah, exactly. You know? And for everyone to just live the code and that's part of it is, you know, you could be big and strong and a badass or whatever you want to say. But, you know, there's also that gentleman side in there that, you know, you take care of folks and you be a mm -hmm. good person and, and just super proud of our, our you know 
of our tribe, you know, yeah. there's hundreds of them and maybe thousands, but it's, it's probably the best part of the job. It was a really cool experience for me. And I, <clears throat> I've said it a couple of times, uh, like in reflecting on just like, you know, cause when you're, and I'm sure you probably experience it 10 times more than any of us, just like how much of a whirlwind the whole weekend is with everything going on. Uh, yeah. so it takes, you know, a couple of days to decompress and like go over, like try to remember what were the highlights, like what did this actually, what actually happened? Uh, and I would, I would say the, it was the, the best way that I could put it as a compliment, like to you and to the, the event itself was it is a place and an event that I would love to bring my wife and my two-year-old son to like, not for the, not for like the, you know, the X's and O's of all the strength stuff, which like I would nerd out on, but just like the family kind of environment around it. Like they would just love hanging out and being a part of all that and getting to see like my other quote unquote family of like all, all of these guys, you know? So it was, it was, it was a blast. Awesome. Well, you got to do it next year. That that's the kind of fun thing that, you know, we kind of laugh. You're like, well, yeah, do we have some, some beers? Do we have a couple guys that guys or girls that are maybe a little bit on that, the rougher edge of things? <laughs> yeah, but they're real and and they have good intentions and they're yeah. they're they're doing it from a good place and and in that way it is still. But you know, you saw my kids running around. You saw yep your kids running around and things like that. I mean, is it a daycare? No, but it's right. You know, I, I certainly don't mind my my kids. You know, growing up in a in a context like that. Right, and just the the welcoming environment of it was what was so cool that that culture part of it because the company itself sornex is 40 years old almost 41 years right uh, uh yeah 41 uh 41 and a half almost 42 yeah almost 42 years so is that something that was kind of instilled from the very very beginning or did that come later on when you got more involved and in, and in that section well, of it it was not, I don't think it was like an intentional, this is what we're doing the company for. You got to remember when my dad started it, it was my dad. Right. So it was him <clears throat> wanting to kind of flex his intellectual muscle and his handiwork because he believed that he could build equipment as good or better than what was in the industry because of certain requirements. Yeah. It needed to be bigger, it's stronger, more adjustable, things like that. And he was always good with building things. So he wanted to to make, you know, really every, every man wants relevancy. And so he wanted to be even more relevant in the strength world over and above his deadlift or his squat or whatever it may be. And he had a gift for it. And that was always kind of in there. So it's like a songwriter. They might just have songs in them. He had designs in them and he just wanted to see those come to fruition. And that was the fun part. Um, you know, incorporating family and and the social aspect of it. That's just always kind of been in there, although I don't see it as being on the early days. It wasn't a part of the business plan or model or ethos. You know, dad was a physical education teacher, so he was a, he's a teacher and a coach by trade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, since I could remember a little kid, I was always walking around in the garage gym with him or later when we had the commercial gym and always being in there as well as other kids were in there watching their dads train and mm-hmm. it was always a social group of, of men getting together and pushing each other hard and talking smack and doing the whole thing. But, you know, uh, it was always very welcoming to, you know, it's kind of always interesting. You have someone that's squatting 800 pounds <clears throat> and then, you know, next up on the platform or in the rack is a is a female that, that you know, had a broken back two years earlier 
the dad's training with a broomstick to how to learn to mm. remove. And I remember just seeing that stuff as a kid. Like, yeah. who's this girl? I don't know. Her name's Annie and she's over here. You know, I heard her back was messed up and it's pretty cool that she's squatting a broomstick. And then a couple years later, she squats 225 and 25 years later, she's still friends with the family. And like, yeah, you saved my ability to walk and to live at that that's time. Amazing. And you're like, wow, that's just stuff I grew up around. So, yeah. you know, in a way it's always been that, but in another way that was, I don't think it was ever super intentional. It's just been kind of how pops ran it. Sure. When you were growing up, that, that brings up an interesting, uh, an interesting point that I was just thinking about when you were growing up and you're around all of this, was it ever something that he had to convince you to kind of be a part of, or were you just naturally wanting to be involved in the strength and the training aspect? Of everything? Um, I mean, early on, I mean, when you're a little kid, you want to, you want to, uh, just do little kid stuff, right. You yeah. know, so, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I think there was a little bit of bribing early on and, and, you know, he's a very good, you know, he'll go in and, and challenge in different ways. And, you know, mm-hmm. there was, I remember there's little times, you know, I might get a GI Joe man or something, which I was like into. Mm-hmm. And I was like, little kid, <clears throat> if I could, you know, do a certain amount of, of a deadlift or whatever, it's not oh, like I nice. trained. It right. was like, I mean, I'm in third grade or second grade. The first time I deadlifted double body weight and yeah. it's just, you know, but I, he had a very sneaky way of making it fun and interesting for me with the reward system. And he told me later, he's like, I had to attribute a reward to the hard work because I didn't think that it would make sense early on. And, and most, you know, kids are egocentric and they worry about what feels good to them and what they want to do. And he's like, I realize if I <clears throat> monetized or built in, there's a reward to the other end of hard work and of struggling and straining that I could mm. map that in your brain early on where that that was not something that would be shied away from. And I remember whether it's a, you know, climbing deer stand in his backyard. And, and if I went out, you know, when I'd go over to his house, I had a, a little tack with a, with a, a ribbon on it. And if the, I was afraid of heights, but if I went higher and was able to move the tack higher, like mm-hmm. that would be worthy of at least praise or maybe like a little whatever. Yeah. And so you start learning like, okay, push myself out of my comfort zone. And there's, there's a reward, like a Pavlovian response, like stuff good happens at the right. other end of hard. And, um, so I, I just, and maybe that came from his years as a teacher, always, there was like a reward system to things. And so early on, no, I wasn't like into lifting. I thought that strong people were really cool. I thought he was yeah. very strong and all of his buddies were really strong. I thought that was great. Did I want to be like that? Of course. But when you're like eight, you don't want to put a bunch of weight on your back and go, you want to like <laughs> right. jump up in camo and run around the backyard, you know? <laughs> right. Pretend to be Rambo so, and just run around. <laughs> of course, a hundred percent. So, you know, and when I, when I first started, you know, I, you know, I'll be honest, this kind of sounds crazy and embarrassing or what, but like first started lifting, I, I wanted to, you know, make some money for, um, to buy Christmas presents for people. You know, when I was a kid, you don't have a lot of money. And so he said, okay, I'll give you five bucks for every time you, you come and train. And I was like, and, and you think and people now you're like, no, you can't, you can't pay him to work out. Like he won't understand the work ethic and this and that. But I figured out quickly, the more effort I put into it, yeah, I was making money for, to buy Christmas presents. And then finally, after a few months after Christmas, I, I ended up telling him, I was like, Hey, you know, you don't have to pay me anymore. Like yeah. that was cool. And, and then, but he's like, yeah, it cost me a couple hundred dollars 
to get you to train for a few months because I, and then he, he's like, I programmed it where you would start seeing gains and realizing that there was more to it than the cash, yeah. which, which worked perfectly. Cause you know, your arms start getting bigger and people start noticing at school and then you're like, okay, cool. There's something to this, but it's hard to make that, that sell to a young kid who, right. You know, they're, they're, what are they going to stick with something a week or two? Like maybe some kids are just complete animals and they're just geared for it. I wasn't, you know, it's hard to make that sell to like some high schoolers at some levels sure. too, you know, or like even older than that. I mean, that's kind of the people need to see physical progress, uh, to really feel that buy-in to right. a lot of stuff. And a lot of times it doesn't happen. I mean, that's the whole reason that, you know, the whole cliche of start on Monday even exists is yeah. you don't see that physical stuff as immediately as people want it to be seen. Right. Uh, and that's why people don't stick with stuff. Right. But then you, I, I hate to say you monetize it and say, okay, well, <clears throat> so if, if I train four days a week, which I did $5 a day, that's $20 a week, $80 a month. So for about 200 bucks, my dad got me addicted to weightlifting and like <laughs> that's awesome. Pretty freaking smart. That's, that's a pretty good ROI. <laughs> pretty big ROI kind of worked out for him. You look at it, you're like, okay, that was, uh, he was, he was investing. He was investing and realizing that I had a need. He could fulfill that need, but I had to work for it. And, yeah. um, that's an awesome it story. Was interesting. So when you move into, uh, cause you, did fairly high level. I mean, we're in the middle of the Olympics right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you did some Olympic trial, you made it to Olympic trials at, yep, at yep. In Hammer Throw, correct? That was yeah, uh, a few level Olympic trials 2000, 2004. I never made the team. Um, it, it, you know, probably I would probably just wasn't good enough. Like maybe just genetically, right. I wasn't good enough. Maybe <laughs> I didn't have maybe I was probably working 50 hours a week, you know, at Sorenex and then trying to be an Olympic athlete after work probably wasn't the most you know, opportune uh, situation, but regardless, mm -hmm. uh, I had an awesome run. I was, I feel, you know, it was cool to go from an unrecruited walk on to, you know, someone who was actually in contention of potentially making a team. Um, I think I qualified for nationals 22, 24 times, something like that That's over awesome. the next X number of years. So yeah, it, that goes back to, I saw reward benefit. You know, yep. it was I, I got scholarship money after I started doing better and I got to travel to cooler meets and go all over the world and go all over the country. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was it was you hate to say it's like a capitalistic environment, but you start realizing that work and hard work and extraordinary performances generally equate to better things in life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm always uh, and, and the reason I brought up the, the track thing specifically, you know, you were a thrower, uh, but all of it is into the track wing to me because that's what I did also. So I'm yeah. always like trying to seek out the other track, the other track what, heads. What did you do? So when I went to college, uh, I went, I went in as a long jump and a sprinter. Cool. Uh, and I was also playing football at the same time for my freshman year. So I did both for wow. a year and I was like, that's not going to be very wow. sustainable. And so I, I stopped playing ball and decided to just pursue track. And when I did that and I'm like, Hey, I got all this extra time now I can devote them. Well, Hey, we're like, Oh, perfect. Here, go learn six more events. We're going to do decathlon. So yeah. yeah. So they made me a, a multi, uh, which I had to learn. I, I had literally had to learn five of the events I'd never done before. Cause I mean, I'm not a big dude at all. So the throws were brand sure. new, um, sure. which were fun. I mean, but I never vaulted. And so, but I mean, like all that was a blast. I just loved like sure. the, whole, the whole atmosphere of track meets and everything is just yeah. like one of my favorite things ever. So I'm always like, I love talking to other people about track. Cause yeah. even like it, at, when we, even at Summer Strong, like 
it's, you know, there's some track people there, but there's a lot of like football guys, right? Cause that's like the, you know, that's just, and it's a totally different energy of person. You know, uh, yes. when you, when you think about like the guys that are deep into football and strength and conditioning in that world, and then like the track people, it's just, they're different personalities and it's, it's just funny to connect with them. It's weird. It's like the, some of the physical characteristics are very, very similar. Let's say from right. an NFL football player to a discus thrower or whatever, but you're right. The personalities and the, the gearing is mm-hmm. very different. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, we joked, I think you've probably seen some memes, you know, I guess at the current Olympics, there's a, you know, it's an empty stadium, no one there, mm-hmm. this and that and the other. And like all of us <laughs> hammer throwers are like, yeah, Phil, how does that feel? <laughs> like, yeah. This is just oh, like every meet ever. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to like, you know, hit a PR and do all this other stuff. And, you know, your, your mom and your girlfriend and like, you know, some 55 <laughs> year old dude that threw 30 years before, like that still likes track just and field. Hangs like, out. Those are the only people that are there, you know, I, mean, yeah, we, totally. I remember competing at nationals in New Orleans, I think 97, and, you know, New Orleans, this is going to be awesome. We're in the stadium and like, and the hammer throw was, I wanted, I don't think it was seven in the morning because that would be pretty crazy, mm-hmm. but it wasn't far off. It was like yeah. eight in the morning at a track, like a half mile from the stadium, not even a track. It was literally just like a field, like yeah. a high school field or something. And you're like, seriously, this is a <laughs> national championships. There's like multiple Olympians out here. And, so you know, these look like instead of a stadium, it was like bleachers, you know, yes. like, either, yep. you're like, we're, this is just like a eighth grade football practice at best. Well, even in the, even in the, when you did a, deca- when we did a decathlon, they take sure. place like a, like the first day of the multi takes place the day before the meet even starts. Sure. So like we're doing five events and there's literally no one else there except for the eight dudes that are doing the decathlon and their coaches. And, and their so coaches and, and their wife <laughs> and their, their girlfriends and their yeah. moms aren't <laughs> yeah. even there yet, you know? Yeah. Cause it's like, well, and everybody's like, meet doesn't start till tomorrow. I thought I'm like, well, I'll be done like at noon tomorrow. So like, <laughs> yeah, you want to hang out in the stands. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't always it's remember just... that. I'd look at the thing. It's like team leaves. And like a day before they're like deck team leaves. You're like, oh, yep. Geez, <laughs> yeah, we take a van down two days prior and go by mm-hmm. ourselves. And that's just part well, of it. So yeah, that's funny that the comparison yeah. to like everybody in Tokyo right now, it's like, this is what track people live with for the most part. Exactly. Oh, you don't have anyone to watch you. This must be tough. <laughs> yeah, um, I love it. Yeah, I was actually... Early in my career, I was thinking about being decathlete. I was certainly mm-hmm. more more um, opportunely sized for that in my early days. Yeah, um, but I didn't know how to vault, and I strangely enough, my coach actually just let me throw, which he shouldn't have because yeah. I'm not, you know, physically Dude, very capable there. But the vaulting thing is a, is a super like that's the that's the make or break I think when it comes yep. to the decathletes. And I had a my roommate in college was a. We were NAIA level, yep. and uh, he was between indoor and outdoor six time, I think, national champion, yeah. vaulter. Uh, went like 17, high 17, something yeah. like that. I mean, he was good, but he You're told me dec- to. Yeah, decathlete. Was he a decathlete? He, no, he was just a vaulter oh, at that oh, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's like Olympic level yeah. vaulting at a decathlete. But he was, uh, he told me too, he's like, for because he'd worked with a ton of multis, like helping him out, coaching him. And it was like just a crazy physical thing that I didn't ever realize. He said, most people, if they don't have some sort of like gymnastics Mm. background or something when they're young, it's nearly impossible to get them good at vault if you teach them when they're adults, because they, people have such a hard time being upside down. 
just like they've, ne- that, they've yeah. never trained that inverted part of it. And there's yeah. just like this internal mechanism that just makes people freak out. And if you're like past a certain age, he's like, it's so hard to break that. And yeah. so he's like the yeah. best, if you look at the best, the best multis, most of them are always the best vaulters. And then they just end up learning a lot of the other stuff. And I'm like, that's super interesting. sense, yeah. But those guys in general. At that level when everyone's so, like, if you're at that level, you're probably all relatively fast. Exactly. You know, relatively, you know, no one's going to throw super far in the shot or the discus. It's like usually Mm -hmm. the tall guys just throw the furthest. Yep. Yeah, but the vault would just kill you if, if not. It's super fascinating. And just like being around, there was some, I mean, just levels of athletes on the track are just mm-hmm. some of the freakiest people I've ever yeah. seen. Like the highlight, and I mean, you, you being involved in that smaller circle of throwers, like some of the most freaky dudes I've ever seen in my life were like super high level discus guys. Like they mm-hmm. are, yeah. I mean, just mammoths of humans and like fast. And I can't, and I can't remember who it was. You'd probably know that his name right off the top of your head. It was like early 2000s. So probably around the time you were throwing. And I think it was at the Olympics and he, he hit a discus like either world record or Olympic record and then takes down to the hundred meter start and the hurdles are all set up and he just starts like sprinting and jumping over the hurdles as he's celebrating. And yeah, do, do you know the canter? I believe it, it might have been. Yeah, yeah. But like exactly. he's just clearing hurdles, like he's just stepping over them, like just it's nothing. And just over like, them. Yeah. yeah, just like what is this? It's like, crazy. We were <laughs> we had the Russian team my freshman year in, in South Carolina in 1994. The Russian team came over. I think it was kind of like their B team. I don't know if it was mm. like their top top dogs, but there was their yeah. close to guys, and. Um, came in through with us and had like a training trip to South Carolina, which was very interesting. I'm like, you know, I've been in college two months and I'm getting to train with the Russian Olympic team, which was That's wild. Cool. And I remember a discus guy, he was like in the almost 190s, which isn't bad out of literally wearing tennis shoes, like literally didn't even have throwing shoes on in the fall. <laughs> you know, in a non-Olympic year, you're like, good, yeah. so you could just punch out a 60 meter throw. But then he <laughs> went over and just like stutter step and just bounced over seven feet in the high jump. Oh my gosh. And you're like, he's like a six, five, 240 pound individual. You're like, of course you would just kind of hop over seven feet. Cause you're just, a superior athlete. Just a and mutant of a human. Just mutant, yeah. You just yeah. see that stuff. You're like, Oh, got it. Y'all can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's who we're just, dealing with. Yeah. You've just decided to throw discus maybe cause there was the line was shorter or whatever, because you could do whatever you Seriously. want. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so in that, in that space, that was right around the time that you started doing more in Sorenex. Uh, and I remember, I think, like like early 2000s-ish was like when you were kind of getting yeah, more involved, Yeah, 1999 was when I started, yeah. right after college. So, yeah, yeah. early 2000s was kind of my growing and, up period. And one of the things I wanted to ask about was because during that time, I think I remember hearing just an in innovation side of things, which Sorenex has always kind of been at the forefront of a lot of innovative things in the exercise space you kind of created a couple of things out of necessity for your own training. Right. Right. Like what, what, what things was, were that and how did those even become things? Sure. Well, probably the one you might be referring to that's probably the most well-known is the landmine. Yeah. That was, that was 99, maybe early 2000, but it was right in there. Mm -hmm. And I was training, you know, for the Olympic trials for 2000 and I, Judd Logan and a a discus thrower, older name you may remember, Susie Powell. She was a discus Mm -hmm. thrower for UCLA. And she she and I would talk training and she was like, we're doing this exercise. It's like this. And then, 
I'm like, how do you, you know, and you shove a shoe in the corner or whatever. And it just mm-hmm. like, wasn't cool. It didn't, didn't work. And so I literally just walked inside. I was like, dad, I want to do this exercise. And he's like between a set of high poles. He's like, take the universal joint off the chest supported rig, you know, off the chest supported row, put a pipe, blah, 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 lock it in the platform. There you go. And it was like <laughs> that long. And just I was like, oh. instant. so we went out to the shop and built it up. And then, you know, I got playing with it and then started realizing, oh, you could do other things with this. You could press it. Yeah. You could snatch it. You could, you know, cause before that it was just, you know, some of this stuff, but when you started to be able to move it and do it in different planes of motion, that, that legitimately kind of created the whole ground base land. I mean, that it was, it was, yeah. it's, it's why we called it the landmine because it built explosiveness at ground level. And that was mm. the whole, that was the reason for it. Like, I don't know what's it like. And then the first one we made, it was like a home base kind of thing because it was so it would jam into a corner on a flat surface or anything like yeah. that. But actually, the first one was never intended to be sold. It was just I mean, my training aid. And yeah. then a couple coaches saw it. They're like, cool, what's that? I'm like, oh, my thing. <laughs> just thing I kind of started using. Just well, and then from, using. from a creative standpoint, that tends to be how a lot of the, how, to, how some of the best things end up being created is out of necessity. Of course. You know, and that's the, yep. one of the biggest drivers of creativity is necessity. Yeah, I want a thing that does this, you know, and, and like, yeah, I remember sleeping, uh, this is probably 2002, 2001 or two. And I was just, you know, when you kind of start waking up and I'm laying there and I kind of like, I remember my back was getting tight or what. And I, I jammed my feet kind of up near my knees and just kind of pushed my hips up. Mm. And I was like, oh. Interesting. That feels kind of good. And I was like, I kind of did it again. I was like, huh, glutes. Interesting. So I went to the gym and I strapped a band across the, um, the rack and the, mm-hmm. the, the, the band pegs and I slid underneath and I started doing, uh, banded glute bridges, which were now called the hip thruster. Yeah. And then I was like, well, it's a kind of a pain in the ass to get under the band. So I would tie a rope around it, throw it over the chin up bar. So I'd pull down on the rope and lift up the bands. And that's uh. how I would get in and out. And I remember one of the first times I met Brett Contreras, he was talking about something about, you know, the hip. I came up with this hip thruster. I was like, well, this is what we used to do a long time ago. And he was just like, <laughs> you know, have been doing this five years longer than me. I was like, it was just one of those things. You I know, guess, yeah. first one was doing it prior to me. You know, but it was mm-hmm. one of those things you just go, okay, this is the movement I feel would be advantageous. How do I load it? You know, and in probably 2007 or so, we started loading because I saw that most people, a lot of people I was coaching, when they were good at deadlift, they wouldn't push their hips in. They wouldn't, they wouldn't activate their hips and, and glutes. So I started mm-hmm. doing a band right at waist level across the rack and I would preload, walk in, walk mm-hmm. into the band where it pushes their hips back. So they're pulling up and slamming their hips forward. Oh, and that yeah. was basically a, a, a vertical um, load um, hip thruster, which in my opinion is almost a better exercise if you got to yeah. lock your hands into it so you, you have a basically a pivot point. But it gets in and out a lot easier. And that's yeah. something that still isn't overly popular, but that was, that, was a, that was a better iteration of the exercise, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. What are so some that, of the – Just kind what of are some of – yeah. Uh, what are some of the more recent, like if you were like innovative or new to market things that are either most recent or either things that you're, I don't know if you can divulge things you're working on, but uh, in in the most recent handful of years? Uh, well, probably the biggest 
the landmine changed a lot of stuff and just because every company has it. But I would say probably the biggest thing we ever did, if I was to look back, would be the rig system. Um, yeah. You know, upright tubes, holes in all four sides, adjustability. You know, people that just got in the strength game don't realize that prior to 2007, that didn't exist. Yeah. Um, it, it just it just didn't. It was squat racks. It was power racks, things like that. And then a chin-up rig was about as close as you got, which were generally uprights with welded or screwed in uh, chin-up bars. And that was yeah. in the early days of CrossFit. Um, but they were always custom made and they're always a pain in the butt to move around. Or if you've ever moved out of a facility, you had to cut the thing apart. They would weld it in place. And of course you couldn't paint it at that point because it was welded. It was just always a pain in the butt. So one of those things we were sitting out actually with the, I was sitting with the girl I was dating at the time at dinner and I was just, she was like, what's going on? I was like, ah, these people at CrossFit are doing this thing. They want all these pull up bars, but they, I was like, well, they should do is just make a series of uprights and cross members that are interchangeable. And if you did holes on all four sides, and I literally about four drinks in, I drew it on a napkin. <laughs> and I was like, this will change how strength conditioning is done. Yeah. Who knew, right? Yeah. And so we then built the first one. And then, you know, at the time, we weren't as good at marketing. We didn't have the, you know, I was still pretty young in it. And it just, you know, you grow your business and try to understand. And we basically just educated the entire industry on the thought process of instead of options, which we were all doing at the time, customized options, creating customized accessories, which accessories are then allowed the customer to totally Mr. Potato Head kind yeah. of however they wanted it, which legitimately just changed the, the landscape of, of strength conditioning weight rooms. Because at that point, you have a series of holes, you have a series of pins, you have a series of cross members and uprights and you kind of could come up with anything you want. So in, yeah. in a way I, I feel very, you know, proud that that was almost from a, from a exercise equipment standpoint, it was, and again, this is a bit of a stretch, but it was like the cell phone going to an iPhone because at that point yeah. you had, it, it unlocked the ability from an equipment standpoint For just sure. to do amazing things that just before were always, one of custom options and you know so that was something that i'm you know i'm pretty proud of that to know that you know even if sornex goes out of business tomorrow that there will be some dna of ours and the um, yeah in the strength world that you know will be built upon for years so that that's and probably the the one of the coolest ones because you guys with with those rigs outfitted the first crossfit games like the the original ones correct the second crossfit games the first second. didn't have anything like that it had uh just a regular pull-up rig and then squat stands. And even at the second CrossFit Games at Dave Castro's house in Aromas, California, 2008, we brought him there. And it was interesting because showing people, we, we set one up and we were like, oh, this is cool. It's a pull-up rig. I'm like, yeah, you see all the holes on all the uprights? They happen to be four feet apart and there's J-cups. They're like, oh, cool. Do y'all make squat stands? And I'm like... <laughs> Okay. Let's start Did again. you hear what I said? Yeah. And I, I remember like doing it a couple times and they were, I would always go, Oh, awesome. Do y'all make squat stands? And I was like, okay. And, but again, it's nothing against, it was funny, but it just showed right. that not everyone is really dialed into what they're seeing. And sure. the early adopters totally got it. They're like, Oh man, this changes the game. Yeah. Uh, and then for the next few years, I still had to, you know, take calls for people wanting squat stands and then wanted the pull-up rig and it's like 
Okay. There's an easier sure. way. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I already have it. No, no, no. What? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, <laughs> and then, hilarious. you know, we put the removable storage pens and things like that. So that that's where that came and just kind of started building out all the basics of a, of a gym and making interchangeable mm -hmm. parts. That's awesome. Uh, to shift gears for a minute, one of the other aspects or, you know, it's kind of its own branch of Sornex that's came around in the last handful of years is the Sornex Outdoors. Yeah. And uh, that seems like something that's a lot more, I, I guess probably all of it is really close to home for you, obviously being involved in it from the, with the strength stuff from the beginning, but the outdoors portion, uh, even just from afar, seems right. like it's a little like personal to you with how that came yeah. about. Well, for good or bad, Sornex is basically just a manifestation of whatever <laughs> we're into. <laughs> it's your company. Do what you want, man. <laughs> it's kind of how it is. But, um, <laughs> you know, we, I've always been in the outdoors. My dad's been out the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And there was a period of my life where everything revolved around competition and strength and power and power output and all the fun, sexy stuff. But the realization was I'm, I'll be 45 this month in, in two, two or three months. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to try to clean 400 pounds this year, probably, most yeah. likely as in 100%. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to try to throw a hammer, you know, 75 meters. Like that stuff isn't happening. But I want to compete, whether even if it's with myself, and I want to push harder. So I think the key of the human existence is always – finding that next mountain to go up, whether it's a physical or just a mental mountain. And for many years, my mental mountain was throwing a freaking ball really far. And mm -hmm. then it was lifting a whole bunch of weights. And then it was throwing other things really far. And then it was lifting a bunch of weights. And then, but as my body, you know, closes a few doors just because father age, you know, father time does a number on us. You know, I, I've kind of revisited back to the stuff that I was really pumped about when I was a little kid, which was the outdoor adventure. And there's really no, you can't win. There's no winning. Yeah. You, you never, you never get to the, to the, you know, you never like, well, mastered that, you know? And so that's kind of fun that I'm, I'm on an adventure that I could go for the rest of my life, but I could also pull my kids and my friends into, it's a little more social, like although there was a team atmosphere with some of, you know, my throwing and lifting, a lot of it was me. It was very right. selfish. It was like, I'm going to go. I mean, I threw in a parking lot by myself for five straight years, like not a lot of social stuff. And I'd show up every couple of weeks to a meet in some state. And then you get to mix it up with the boys and see who, who comes out on top. But you know, that's just not, that doesn't fit my life these days. So when we kind of realized that, you know, some of my success I'd had in hunting or the outdoors pursuits were at times because of my physical prowess. I go, wow, that was pretty good that I was strong and powerful and able and athletic. And I probably was able to do some things that other normal-ish people wouldn't have been able to do. Yeah. And then you look at other just super freaks like your Cameron Haynes's and stuff like that. And you're like, okay, he's definitely had success because of his physical abilities right. that most humans couldn't do. So like, okay, there's some meat there. And, and, and I look and I go, wow, people are trying to train for some of these outdoor pursuits where that's the world we come from. And maybe I could shift fire and shift some of the resources and assets, um, whether they be personnel or stuff like that, to 
how do I help this this other industry that I'm very passionate about? And then the other side of it is there's so many guys, maybe not exactly like me because I had those experiences early on, but let's say they're guys or girls who competed in sports from the time they were eight years old. They lived in a stadium or on a field or in a weight room for 20 years. Then they're kicked out of the other end of that, maybe after college, after the Olympics, after whatever, and they want that challenge. And, and then a lot of times when you're very successful in that, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of interaction with people all the time. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I wanted to introduce maybe a more simple, sustainable and capable lifestyle of the outdoors back to the people that I love in the strength and conditioning space. Because, yeah, you could still deadlift 500 pounds and be excited about that. But as I as I've grown as a man, I go, okay, why? Why? Why do I need to do that? One of them is ego. I want to I want to know that I'm still strong. Another one is you know, I do want to be capable. I want to be capable if something happens and I need that level of strength that I have that accessible. And then the last is, okay, I, I, I need to use that as a tool. It has to be a means to an end and I need, but I need an end. I need a goal. Yeah. And if I if, figure if I could introduce the two groups of people that I probably connect best with if I could be a conduit or my company could be a conduit or Sornex Outdoors could be a conduit between those two worlds, then hopefully we could help some people and, and share some of our love with them and, and inspire people to not hang up their competition days or their strenuous days when they're 25 years old. You know, they go, well, I used to lift back in the day, but, you know, I'm just a dad now. And I'm like, all right, well, book an elk hunt this year and get your butt kicked if you don't prepare and then come back the next year and train your ass off and then yeah and then then do some awesome things and then teach your kids to go do awesome things and maybe it looks different than it did when you were in college like funny thing is i had a, a good college career and a decent professional athletic career my kids have really never seen me compete yeah it was like i mean i i doubt my kids would even know what a hammer throw was and that's what a lifetime I, ago. I, that was a lifetime ago. It was like a, a yeah, book yeah. I read, basically. It was like a mm-hmm. book I read about a guy that looked like me. That's about how what it like <laughs> how it feels in my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, oh shit, I used to do that. That's cool. <laughs> that's pretty neat, you know. But my kids wouldn't know if I showed them a hammer. They didn't know what it is. Right. But how do you how do you bring some of that? You know, I mean, I got to watch my dad live out his dreams and go after things really hard and, and struggle and strain and get injured and all the stuff, you know, and that built like, OK, this is what a man does. This is what what we do as humans. Whereas in a way I go, ah, you know, maybe just by time I, I picked the wrong time to have kids that they didn't get to see their dad at the Olympic trials or whatever it may be. So that, that's where I want to make sure people don't don't hang up the. Don't hang up the sword too early, you know. And it seems like part of the that that gap that you're bridging uh, with the outdoors world and that performance world is kind of the reason for the Winter Strong event in, in some way, right? Uh, so, is, was that kind of the idea of how that how that came to be? Hundred uh, percent. I mean, so there's there's a couple people at Summer Strong that are some of my my close buddies like the the Rudy Reyes's and the Brady Cervantes and the Derek Woodskies and the guys like that. And we were kind of talking and, and we were like, man, 
Summer Strong is so awesome. I'm like, we ought to do it again, like, during the year instead of just the one time per year because it's like, you know, you get a high and then you get yeah. a hangover from it, right? And then you're like, oh, yeah. man, nothing's as fun as Summer Strong, you know? <laughs> right. And but I got to wait 10 more months, you know? So we're like, all right, let's do it again. And then so I kind of wanted to flip the script a little bit on everyone. I was like, all right, we're doing a Winter Strong. It was like, yay. I was like, but it's different. It's going to be a different focus, a different mentality. It's going to be different players. It's going to be, you know, at the farm. It, it's going to be camp out. You know, you're going to have to, <clears throat> it won't be cush. It won't be, it's going to be a lot of struggle. It might be, hopefully pray for terrible weather. You know, <laughs> yeah. and that's the thing. Summer strong, we're like, I hope it's 80 and sunny. It'll be perfect. <laughs> and the winter strong, it's like, eh, you're the better, you know? Yep, exactly. that, that's kind of what that was. And so it was a, opportunity to mix those two worlds and an environment that was maybe a little bit foreign to some people and allow a different group of people to be the experts. And yeah. then by the end of the weekend, you realize, oh, these other folks, they're experts also. It's just in a different thing. But when you're sitting around a fire, you realize that everyone has a value and that if you're you're tying in each other's value proposition that, you know, you could build a pretty strong tribe. One that tribe part of it is like one of the most important aspects of humanity yeah you know uh, like being able to have different skill sets in a, in a collective utilize yeah. everybody's different skills and have like a functioning small society i mean like that's yeah. how we were that's how we survived forever until you know just the last hundred years when like the industrialization stuff just exploded yes. i mean but that's how survival happened right no no one of us is good as all of us yeah. You know, and that's the exactly. kind of idea of, it, you know, and it's like, yeah, you're going to get a dude who's a Marine scout sniper that could really understand concealment and stalking and all these cool skills. <clears throat> but he's going to sit down and listen to a guy who was a eight time All-American in a sport that has been a professional strength coach, because I guarantee that guy could teach that guy something. And yeah. vice versa. That's the cool yeah. trade proposition of it. Like you tell me your skill, I'll tell you and we'll invest in one another's success and that's how we mm. build a relationship that's so cool so where do you where is the because the outdoors thing i mean is relatively new like in the last mm -hmm. handful of of years where do you yeah, see we've done three winter strong so far yeah. but i mean i've you know again Sornex outdoors i guess is two or three years old right where do you where where is that where do you see that heading and and plans um, for that as a as its own kind of entity yeah i mean at the time right now it's just you know, we're just kind of testing it and just seeing what value can we bring to both groups. And, yeah. I, and I, it's it's happening more and more. And so we're, we're going to go after it. I mean, we have some pretty cool things planned for the next year. Um, but more than anything, we just wanted to make sure we were bringing value to the two communities that we we love. And we yeah. are. And that's that's the key of it. You know, it's not like it's not made us really any money at this point. You know, that's not the goal. <laughs> right. Um, the goal is to kind really like my dad did 41 years ago was, you know, gain relevance in the industry or a community of people that you appreciate and you, mm -hmm. you appreciate their mindset. And, you know, I've, I've loved hunting and fishing in the outdoors since I could remember since I was a little teeny tiny boy, you know, so that's something I know I'll do until the day I leave this earth. So if I could have some of my skill sets become valuable in that industry or that community whether I, I use industry but like even if it's not 
for money or whatever, that's fine. Sure. If I could help some people enjoy themselves and be able to get outside more and test themselves through, you know, some of my assets for physical fitness. Great. That's awesome. Do you, uh, so in the hunting specific realm of things, uh, what are you, what do you got coming up this fall as far as hunting? Are you making any long trips out any out west? Yeah, anywhere? I got a bunch of long trips coming, which I'm I'll be honest, I'm super pumped about. I'm a well, I'm a little stressed because anytime I'm away, <laughs> it's you know, you got family, yeah. you got all the other stuff. And I got an awesome team that's covering for me, but you know, um the the kids I can't wait till they're old enough to go on these adventures with me. For sure. That'll change things. But yeah, I have a uh, a mule deer hunt and about a month, uh, almost exactly a month. I got a mule deer hunt in Arizona, some um, open land, uh, you know, public land, spot and stalk archery. And spot and stalk is when you, you know, you glass up, you know, maybe from a mile, two miles, maybe three miles out, you glass up the animal that you're looking for. And you, what we call a dig, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but we, we call it dig yep. them up. So you sit on, you hike to the top of a mountain, <clears throat> for those who don't know, you get on your spotting scope or you get on your binoculars and you scan until you see what you think might be a deer um, that you want. You, you lock in with your spotting scope. You confirm, yeah, he's a, a buck of a cer- certain age class, something you're going after. And we're going after the biggest, strongest animals, which in a way is another way of making it harder because in really in nature, yeah. you go out, you know, every other predator goes after the weak and dying. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. let's go after the biggest, smartest one. Cause that's really a great idea. <laughs> right. Bad business, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> overheads way too high. Yes. So, uh, so the challenge is there is you pick out, Hey, that's the animal I want to go after. Mm-hmm. And then you plan your stock and it might be a few miles and you're basically sneaking through the woods and, making reference points on maps and, and, and working your way in until you can keep eyes on this animal and get within 30, 40, 50, 60 yards with the bow yeah. and then uh, try to put a well-placed arrow in a, in a spot that, that you know provides a quick kill. That's the goal. That's when everything works well. But uh, it's about, I think it's a, I think it was a 2% success rate in Arizona <laughs> on on yeah. bucks, uh, archery spot and stock yeah. public land and if you have a good guide it's about 20 percent success rate that's pretty wild so this will be my third year i've been within 50 yards probably six or seven times in the last two years i've never scored on a deer yet but i've been full draw a few times and whether mm-hmm. it's a little bush or whether it's been whatever it is I've been unable to kill one. So I guess mathematically, I'm kind of due. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Time is it's also a learning curve, right? I mean, you're yeah. talking something that's very, very difficult that you're having to just learn on the fly and a steep learning curve, and yep. which I find super enjoyable because I got to a point, whether it's in the throws or lifting or whatever, not saying I was an expert. I mean, maybe based upon my success level or ranking, I guess you could say whatever you want to sure. say. But there gets to be a point where the proficiency is there and those last few inches and last few pounds are really hard to come by. Yeah. Well, I like starting over on something that I just don't have the context for and, and, you know, spot and stock archery mule deer in public land, Arizona in the high desert is about as, Interesting as it gets yeah. that I've I, done. I, so. I, uh, I mentioned to you yesterday I had Austin 
uh, Austin Leg out at my place, and we the trained. Bear and, yeah, we we trained and recorded uh, a podcast after that. And he and one of the things we talked about was he's of the firm belief, and it raised some debate in a little group chat that I'm a part of uh, with his statements. But he's of the firm belief that mule deer hunting is infinitely more difficult than bull elk hunting, and uh, and. And he had his whole, I mean, like he goes into a whole thing about why. Uh, and he's like, you're not going to move me from this position because this is, <laughs> what I, this is what I believe. But like, you listen to him like that, you know, you have some compelling case here when you, when you yeah. say all, you know, with the mule deer just being their lone dudes all the time and they're ghosts, essentially. They're ghosts. They're absolutely ghosts. That's actually what I named my deer last year was the ghost because he would just, he'd be there and then he'd just vanish. And you're like, how does a giant yeah. animal vanish? And, and again, I, I've only killed one elk with a with a bow, so I mean I, I'm not an expert in that regard. But <clears throat> a lot of guys that I know that are proficient in both say that you know the archery mule deer is just a, it's a it's mm-hmm. a different animal. So I would I would agree. I haven't heard the exact reasons for Austin. I'll text him after this and find <laughs> out what his, good. his diatribe is. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I tried a lot less to kill my first elk with a bow than I did. My mule deer, so. Yeah, yeah, um, and that was part of what he said. He's like, oh, he's like, I can bring you. He, he, was, he said, how do you say it? He's like, me and you can get in the car and drive a couple hours, and we'll get in to a, probably a handful of bull elk because you can, you, I mean, you can hear them. You know exactly right. where they are, you know, and I mean, whether or not you get close enough to get a shot on them, he's like, we know where they are. Yeah. And uh, he's like, you literally have no idea where mule deer are ever he's like they'll wait they'll hang out all day long uh hang up at the very tip top of the mountain and then when there's like one minute of light left they sprint down to the bottom to get a drink and then haul back up and like you never see them you know it's all a timing thing they are ghosts yeah (laughs) so hopefully i'm so i'm going straight from that hunt to elk in wyoming uh with a bow so hopefully like i'll become some sort of ninja in Arizona and then carry that ninjutsu with yeah. me into Wyoming and then the elk will be a, a cakewalk, which I still don't think that's the case, but I mean, it is a bigger target. Right. <laughs> yeah. A lot more. And they scream a lot, you know, I don't, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. like mule deer don't scream at you. Right. Um, so Are that, you? and then I have my, uh, I go to Missouri every year for whitetails and nice. then I'll hunt South Carolina for whitetails around here. And, nice. you know, maybe there's a target of opportunity that, you know, Someone will call me the last minute, like, "Hey, man, come to this ridiculously awesome place to hunt." And then if I could get mm-hmm. away, I'll try to do it. So, have you been? Have you been out to Idaho and hunted Idaho? I hunted Idaho two years ago with Austin okay. Leg and Tyler nice. Wolfley for white for mule deer, and I mean, yeah. we were hunting a rifle, and it was still we had two or three really really close shots. We passed yeah. up a couple small bucks, but a couple shooters. And I will say. Talk about physical fitness. Austin is a freaking mountain goat, first yeah. of all. And we got on this buck and caught his cut his track in the snow. And he's like, dude, we got to roll, man. Like this, you know, this deer, you know, so that he and uh, Tyler said, you know, every time you see the deer run, you run because otherwise you'll never catch up with him. Yeah. So we would just follow his tracks and we would just do whatever he was doing on his tracks. And um, we finally got in within about 100 yards of him, but he, he busted us, so we came around the corner. But I thought I was going to die trying to trying to follow Austin and, Ty, and mm-hmm. Tyler. Again, both mountain dudes, both been there, but I'm a bit bigger than them, so excuses enough. 
those dudes are mountain goats. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, a couple of times I was like, well, if I die now, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's pretty good death, I guess. Like, you know, this is a good uh, story. It'll be a good, good, good story, story to tell. You know, Austin's being a course of bros. Like, dude, you want me to carry your rifle? I'm like, no, I'm okay. You know, and, uh, That's awesome. So, you know, sprinting in the, you know, eight inches of snow up a mountain for miles mm-hmm. after a mule deer is, is um, it certainly re kindled my passion for wanting to go back home and train <laughs> yeah it, well and that brings up another question too do you when you're in like this time of year leading into yeah hunt season with everything do you change how you what your training yeah. protocol for all yeah. that yeah i certainly do um i've been changing it lately i've had a couple little injuries some tendonitis some hip stuff mm-hmm. going on more from over from overtraining volume and, and just weight mm-hmm. over the years and so Kind of my goal right now until I get back from elk hunting, which will be, you know, five, six weeks away from now, nothing heavy. I mean, eh, especially in definition for what I used to call heavy, nothing heavy, sure. a lot of reps, uh, a lot of um, a lot of vol- like volume, but like consistency without a ton, ton of volume each time. So I'll go five, six, seven days a week now, and they might be one 20 or 30 minute session or it might be two 20 minute sessions a day but mm-hmm. it's not going to be these big heavy grinders of big deadlifts big because i don't want to get injured right now right. You, know, you tweak a back you tweak a hip you something like that now i can't hike and i can't carry a pack because i'm a super amount of pain or i tear a bicep or tear a right. lat or a shoulder and i can't draw my bow so it's like kind of like i used to train for track and field like it's championship season now i've done the work keep everything rolling so the reps will go up um consistency will go up just it's almost like tuning down the intensity and and just just go you know it's it's a lot of kettlebell swings pull-ups versa climber assault bike pull a sled shoot a bow just you know that type of thing without the really heavy stuff in there um just because I'm just trying to take care of myself. And then, and then also I've used kind of the excuse of the deer season, the deer and elk season to trick myself into not going heavy. Cause I have a tendency of wanting to go up and touch the curtain every once in a while. And again, it's just ego. It's just, yeah. I used to be able to do this. Am I sliding down that mountain? No, I want to reach out and grab it and do it again, just to prove to myself I can. And then that's usually where it goes awry for me because of my lack of discipline. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do much uh, like actual loaded carrying hiking kind of stuff in preparation as well? Not as much as I'd like to. And that's only because of my time schedule recently. It's just I've been so busy. So, you know, I'll go like I wake up in the morning. I do my breathing rocking protocol. I shoot a couple arrows, whether I get breakfast or not. And that's just more (laughs) mental preparation because I realize you know, these long shooting sessions don't mean crap if my first arrow isn't where it needs to be. So, so, so go into that a little bit because you're, you're actually yeah. hanging breakfast on the line yeah. whether or not you make this shot. Yeah, because I want the mental preparation side of, I mean, I take one arrow out in the morning. I, I warm up a little bit, just like I would say if I had been walking or whatever, but I do this to kind of loosen my hips up and get my body moving. And I go outside, I take one arrow, and I've started at a distance that um, – was not an impossible shot, but I certainly have to focus to do a kill shot for me. It was about 60 yards. Okay. And every day, I did first of 60 for a couple of days, and I said, well, screw it. I'm going to add a yard every day um, and just keep every day I make it. I'm going to add a yard, 
and every day, and then I get to eat breakfast. So that I put a mental strain on myself to focus because a lot of times you get, whether it's a rep in the gym or a shot or whatever, you're like, Oh, you're like, Oh, I missed. All right. Now I'll focus. Right. Right. And this was like, okay, no, I'm literally going to, to Arizona for one shot. Yeah. I'm going to Wyoming for one shot. I'm going to Missouri for one shot. So really I'm talking three arrows are all that matter for three or four months. Yeah. And all year I've trained for three arrows in three different states if everything goes well. So you got looking, I'm like, I don't need to go out and shoot these 50, 50 session deals or, or like guys go out and like, oh, yeah, I shot at 70 yards yesterday or 80 yards, whatever. But they shot at 20, 30, 40 and work their way up. It's like, no, right. get hand in an arrow in the morning and walk to 67 yards and send it. And for me, that was good because it caused me to really focus and to get like, how quickly could I focus? How could I put everything aside and realize there's a penalty if I miss? Like, yeah, I get the reminder for the next four or five hours while well, your your stomach's grumbling, you're hungry. Yeah, you failed this morning. You need yeah. to train harder. So then you come back in the afternoon and you do your training and your drills or whatever. Um, so it's been fun. And I, I've only missed once so far. I was about an inch or two out. And man, you talk about pissing you off and staying with you. <laughs> it was like the entire day. And I remember right before I made the shot, I had this little shred of doubt. Like it was just like, ah, I don't know if this is going to go. Like, so this is wrong. And I just started making excuses. And of course, lost focus. It was out. And I remember the next day I woke up, my eyes cracked open and it was like pure <laughs> kill mode. It was like, oh no, right now we're putting an end to this shit right now. And it was awesome. I came out, wham, slammed it. I walked out, grabbed another air, wham, slammed it again. Slammed <laughs> the door on. I was so mad, but it was like, good, there's your old competitor. That's yeah. how you compete, yep. you know? And it was like, so there's a physical component of it to it, but it's like, hey, you're out there competing and act like it, you know? Yeah. And so uh, that, you know, breakfast was nice that morning, yeah. you know, because Extra I, nice. I earned it, you know? And yeah. so I've had a lot of people start doing it online and stuff like that. And we, you know, guys going up and, and again, it doesn't have to be 60 yards, 70 yards, whatever. It's what is a shot that's not impossible, but that you better pay attention when you do it and then right. add to it and see how far you could go. My goal is, you know, I'd love to be able to make hundred yard bombs on the first round by the time I go. And then, you know, I got 30 days, I'm at 66, 67 this morning. So I'm, I'm going to be right go. at it if I yeah. can keep winning, you know? And, um, so that was just, again, another training apparatus. Well, and to, to bring it full circle back to when you were eight years old, you put a reward at the end of it. Like yeah. you did something to put a reward, like to sure. push you to, to incentivize it. Incentivize it. Yeah. And negative reinforcement works too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in both, both ways, you know, and then there's also that, that social pressure, you know, to record it and to go, yes. all right whatever happens this morning, I'm not taking a second shot. I'm not editing. It's like, here it is. If yep. I fail, then X number of people are going to see me fail mm -hmm. and, you know, get your crap together, pay attention yeah. and, and, and shoot, because I don't want to go all the way out to Arizona to lose focus for that split second. And, you know, you work four hours on your belly to crawl in on a world-class deer and you, you dog it because of, you know, four seconds of lack of focus. Right. Cause you don't get a warm up when you're out and you don't get a warm up. Yeah. When you're out yeah. The field. And it happened because last year I missed a deer in, in Missouri 
and and I'd been in a tree at seven to ten degrees for four straight days. Halfway through the fourth day, nice buck comes through, rattled him in, and I missed. And it was a far farther shot, but a shot I would have made a million times in training, mm-hmm. which I had sixty yards, and I just whiffed. And I'm like, yeah. what in the world? And I was like, oh yeah, I, I wasn't super focused. I was like, all the stuff didn't go through my shot process. And I was like, all that crap I did last year to train, it didn't matter because the first shot I wasn't ready to to go, right. you know. And it, and it goes back to the old competition days, you know. If you have to have everything perfect to throw far, well, then are you really ready to compete? And that happened to me in my first Olympic trials, you know. I, I think I talked about this with someone else, but. So as well, you all know in track and field, the better you get, actually, the easier it is because yep. the judges start letting you have as many warm-ups as you want. And that's a friendlier environment. And like, mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but the the guys who aren't throwing as far, like, they'll kind of let you in line whenever you want. Like, <laughs> right. it, it sounds like an ass, right. but it just it is. They're like, you know, I remember towards the end of my career, they're like, hey, Bert, you need any more warm-ups? I'm like, yeah, I'll take another. What the heck, you know? Yeah. And like the younger yeah. guys are like, you're done, <laughs> you know? And it's just how it is, right? Yeah. But then my first Olympic trials I go to and we go, they drive us to a warm-up track and they go, you got two throws in order and your order that you'll throw in the track, then get on the bus and then we're taking you to the uh, to the to the facility. And I can't remember if we even had a, a warm-up throw in the facility. Oh, Wow. And then the bus was something was jacked up with the schedule. So we sat at a bus stop for 30 minutes. And then you go into the stadium with 25,000 people and you're on the jumbo mm-hmm. screen and they're like, you're th- third thrower up. Um, ready? Let's go. And you're like, yeah. yeah, but I'm used to like getting another one in because I'm kind of cold now. And they're like, anyway, you're up. <laughs> you know. And, and that <laughs> yeah. was a, 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 an experience that I didn't handle well. And because you just and that's when you realize the difference between being someone that's professional level and professional. And my marks were professional level, but there were guys who were professional Mm -hmm. that had been there before. They knew how to handle that pressure. They knew what they needed to do for their first round throw to be a ticket to the finals. And they built on it after that. I didn't understand that at that point. So that's one of those things, too, that you and that's one of those things, too, that you don't like. There's a certain point where you won't have that ability or knowledge until you have that experience yes my coach never thought to tell us that part yeah and now then looking back and i go okay so like you better train to be able to do that you know and i I remember hearing a story of a javelin thrower that i believe the year before missed the olympic team by x number or the finals or something by x number of centimeters and So for the next Olympics, he trained and like towards the end of this cycle, he set an alarm for random times in the day. And from the time his alarm would go off, he had 60 minutes to produce a throw that would make it to the finals. Wow. Day or night. Yeah. Two in the morning. Get up. Get your crap together. You got 60 minutes. You have a 75 meter throw. You got to punch out right now. And I thought of like how that just must have just steeled his mind to the mm-hmm. point where you go, I'm good for 75 meters any day of the week, anytime, day or night, you wake me up and you give me 30 minutes to get to the track and another whatever, I'm ready to roll. And yeah. like walking into that scenario, 
you know, and that's where I took that as like, okay, you hand me my bow and you give me a minute to range it and get my head straight. I'm going to make that shot, whether if it's in a halfway makeable position for my level and that's where I want to be. I don't, I'm not saying I'm there yet, but that's the goal of where I want to go. Right. Like, cool. If I know I can make a shot at 110 yards, you hand me my arrow in 60 seconds. I want to be able to make a shot at 110 yards. Yeah. The, the difference open. between that, like you said, professional level and professional, the, the example yeah. that I immediately thought of was I, I had heard a story and I could probably ask Bo about this cause he knows him personally, but I'd heard stories about Forrest Griffin Yeah, where he used to, in camp when he would do like his sparring matches and stuff would set it for, he, he wouldn't even start until like 11 PM because that's what time he'd fight when like exactly. the card night comes. And most guys don't even think of that. Like they're training, oh. like they do their stuff during the day and then it comes and like their whole day schedules thrown off now because now they're not doing anything until nine, 10 o'clock at night. And sure. he would like change his whole schedule around to like do it those time times a day. And I'm like, yep. that's, those are like those small details that that's what there's going to separate like the, the great from the really great. Yeah, know? exactly. I end up making my shot usually about seven something in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, when I haven't been up that or that long and whatever. And that's kind of the point. I don't want to yep. like, Oh cool. Like I've been fed a couple times. I'm happy now. I'm warmed yep. up. Body feels good. Kinesthetic awareness is there. All right. You know, I look back and half the big animals I've ever killed have been in the morning and half in the evening, but usually yep. pretty freaking close to dark. Early. And so, yeah, you hike in, you're, the, the sun breaks, cracks up, you haven't shot your bow in four days. And now the, you know, the animal of a lifetime is, you know, walking by at 57 yards, like you can pass. Or if your capability is where you hope it will be, then like you can make that shot. And, and again, that's where it kind of loops it back to the performance model of, it's all a sport. It's all a, a challenge. And, it, and I'm not telling people everyone needs to hunt or bow hunt or whatever. Just find something that you, you challenge yourself mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, like some, some mountain that you have to climb uh, and get prepared for because the process of it gets to be what, what really teaches you who you are. That's awesome. That's a pretty good place to wrap it up, man. We're a little over an hour right now, so I know you got to hit it. But yeah. thank you, man, for coming on. I, it was thank a pleasure. You so much, and I, I really appreciate your time. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to love to chat with you again sometime. Where can uh, everybody find all the things that you're doing? Okay, uh, Instagram uh, Bert Sorin B E R T S O R I N uh, Sornex or Sornex Outdoors and or Sornex Outdoors. Also, mm -hmm. if, you, if it's in October and you're all about the Squattober lifestyle, which we give free programming, uh, Sornex Squattober is really cool. Uh, free program for squat and just doing something really freaking hard for 30 minutes. Uh, our 30 days and uh, probably the best ways to get a hold of us check out our gear sorenex.com so we make it pretty simple i have a poor memory so we make it all very simple i <laughs> love it awesome well thanks again man i appreciate you thanks a lot appreciate all the support bud mm -hmm.